Good morning to all of you. There, the lights came up. I couldn't see you when I first stepped up here. Good morning. Happy Fourth uh, of July weekend. I know the fourth is tomorrow, but um, happy Independence Day. I'm Pastor Tim. Have the privilege of preaching this morning because Pastor John has enjoyed a week of vacation, and I'm glad he had the opportunity to enjoy that. He works hard, and and uh, you know everybody needs to get away occasionally and and kind of recharge their their batteries. Um, it is the Fourth of July weekend. And, um, you know, I wonder, I wonder how many people really know specifically what this holiday is about. It, it's actually a, uh, a federal holiday um, that um, we celebrate the, the anniversary of our nation's birth. More specifically, it's actually the, we celebrate the, the adoption of the Declaration of Independence. And you probably know these famous words from the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We are a free country. This is why they call it Independence Day. If you are young, it is more, much more than a movie. Boy, that was... That. That went over like a lead balloon. The first, con- the first service picked it up a lot quicker. But we are, we are free. We are a free country. Free from what? Well, technically free from the British Empire. But the 4th of July weekend, Independence Day, has, has come to mean so much more than what was achieved at the Revolutionary War. I think, it's okay. I think that's okay. On a grander level, this weekend we celebrate and we, we uh, celebrate freedom from tyranny, slavery, um, the evil intents of others to occupy. You know, we've always had conflict. And I think, in, I think the 4th of July weekend and Independence Day is a day for us to remember more than just the Revolutionary War. You might think of World War I, the Great War, and all that happened there, World War II, I mean, and I could name so many, the Korean War, the Vietnam War. It was always going to be conflict. And of course, the Gulf War, and now we hear so much about radical Islamic terrorism. Countries or peoples trying to occupy others, and the conflict to hold those back. As I've thought, I've spent a lot of time talking about or thinking about freedom. I'm going to try to give you an idea how a sermon comes together. You know, a sermon is not just, it doesn't just happen, you know, when a pastor sits in his office and studies. He thinks about it all the time. And so I've spent a lot of time preparing for this weekend, thinking about freedom. And as I've thought about the Fourth of July weekend, it came to my mind that this, is, this freedom is a national freedom. It's corporate. Um, this freedom comes with responsibilities. And as I thought about it, I, I was moved in to start thinking about the fact that I think freedom can be abused. And I fear that this abuse of freedom has snuck into the church. And I want to address that just a little bit this morning. Um, I was actually sitting in the movie theater watching the sequel to Independence Day when it hit me for the first time. I actually started thinking about the word independence. 
And so I, when I had a chance, I looked up the definition of independence. This is how this kind of progressed. Independence, freedom from outside control or support. The quality or state of being independent. And then I thought of the word independent. And so I looked that word up. <clears throat> and that word, some of the definitions, not subject to control by others, self-governing. Now, when you think of that in a national sense or a corporate sense, it's, it's fine. But I started, it started coming to me as more of an individual thing and self-governing. I started to feel a little uncomfortable. Uh, other definitions, not, re, not requiring or relying on something else. Not looking to others for one's opinion or for guidance in conduct. And then all of a sudden, as I was praying and thinking about this, I, I was... I flashed back to my days as a youth pastor, and I thought of all the, all the students I'd been around, not all of them, but how they all want independence from their, they want to be independent from their parents. And I remembered that when that got really bad, and I don't know if this still happens today, I haven't heard about it anymore, but, but back then, you could actually, I had, we had several students that actually went into the court system to apply for emancipation. I haven't heard about that, but basically what they were doing is they wanted to be emancipated from their parents. And I started realizing that, that, that independence can, can kind of have a negative connotation to it. And truth be known, I don't know that this is, this is just a teenage thing. I think in reality we all battle with it. I think in reality, if we were really honest, we all want to be independent. We all want to do our own thing. We all want to not have anybody else tell us what to do because I'm a free person. And then I started thinking about um, freedom. And so I looked up the definition of freedom. The state of being free. That's very profound, isn't it? Or at liberty rather than in confinement or under physical restraint. Exemption from external control, interference, or regulations. The power to determine action without restraints. And I, start, I, I was starting to be a little uncomfortable, and then as I prayed, thought, I remembered a sermon I did. I thought I did it years ago, and so I looked it up. I preached it last year on this very same weekend, <laughs> and I thought, wow, that was a year ago? I mean, imagine, it's just a year. It didn't seem like it was that close, and I, I was reminded of an article. That's why I went back to that sermon of an article that I shared, and the article was 10 Reasons Why America is the Greatest Country in the World, and the number one reason America is the greatest country in the world is freedom. And then I shared, and I'm not going to share all of them with you, but here's a few things that I shared from that article. We are free to do what we want to do. We are free to raise our children the way we want to raise them. We are free to work where we want to work or not. We have freedom of speech and religion. And I added this one that morning because we were all in church together. We are free to be here this morning or not. And as I was reprocessing that article, 
a question hit my mind. Are we? Are we free to do whatever we want to do? And then I thought of a couple of passages, and I'm just going to read them to you. If you want to write them down, you can look at them later, but just try to process them with the question. Are we free to do whatever we want to do? Luke 9.23, Jesus is speaking, and he says, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself daily, pick up his cross, and follow me. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, are we really free to do whatever we want to do? Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. And as I processed all of this, I came up with what I'm just calling some truths about freedom. And I'm sure you could come up with more, but here's what I came up with as I was processing all this. I think it is absolutely true that we have freedoms, that we have certain freedoms. But I also think that it is absolutely true that we are never, ever completely free or independent. We are never, ever completely free or independent especially for those of us that name the, the name of Christ. For those of us that are part of the, are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we are never completely free to do whatever we want to do. And I think it's also true that throughout time, mankind has abused the freedoms that God has given us. And that's where I got the title for the message this morning. I entitled it, Freedom Abuses. I'd like to share, I'd like to start by having us read Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, and then we're going to read Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. And I think this is the very first abuse of freedom in Scripture. Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, and I should say at least the first abuse of freedom by man. The Lord God took the man, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, listen to the words, you are free, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. If you can go over to chapter 3, if you're looking in your Bibles, verses 1 to 7, and here's, here's the first abuse, I believe, of man. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, now hear the language, process what the serpent says to the, to the woman. Did God really say? I think if we're really honest, we say that to ourselves more times than we imagine. Did God really say, you must not eat, tree, eat from the, any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, oh. I mean, she didn't, I don't, oh is not in the text. But it's almost like, oh, no, you're wrong. We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. 
Now listen to these next words from the serpent, because he is calling God a liar. And so often I think we make this very same mistake. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. And then he goes on and he, he keeps attacking, and now he implies that God is withholding something from them. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like evil, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And here's where the abuse come in, comes in. They fell for it. And you notice I said they fell for it. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desiring, desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they realized they were naked, and they lost their innocence. And we have struggled with that ever since. Think about it. God gives the freedom of the entire Garden of Eden. God has always given more than He's held back from us. And when He holds back from us, it's for our own good, by the way. But He gives them all the garden. And He says, just don't eat from that one tree. And what do we do? We take the freedom and we want what we're not supposed to have. You know, I've heard a lot. I imagine you have as well in this political time we're living I've heard a lot about radical Islamic terrorism. Turn on the news, you're, you're going to hear it. It's such a controversy right now. Radical Islamic terrorism. But what bothers me is they name radical Islamic terrorism as our sole enemy. It's like that's the only problem out there, but I want you to know that our enemy is not so much radical Islamic terrorism or any other organization that strives to enslave people. Our number one enemy is sin. And it is the sin that is behind those people that we battle against. Sin is the greatest tyrant and enslaver of men, putting all mankind into bondage. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. Sin blinds us. We are lost. We have no way out. But Jesus Christ, God himself, in all of his wisdom and grace, came and died on the cross for our sins, and he conquered sin. He fought the battle, and it was won. Romans 6.23 does say, for the wages of sin is death, but it goes on to say, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And what is so wonderful about that is all we must do is give our lives to Jesus Christ, accept His forgiveness on the cross, and we will be saved. Romans 10, 9, and 10, that if you would confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. We are forgiven when we give our lives to Jesus Christ. We are cleansed. We are set free. We are made free. Free to do whatever we want to do? Obviously, the answer to that is no. And honestly, the Scriptures teach if, if someone is truly saved, they won't want to do everything that, 
that they want to do. They won't even think that way. 1 John 3.9 says, No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. Now that doesn't mean we don't sin because we will battle with that until the day we go to be with the Lord. But when we do sin, we don't call something that's wrong right and we repent and we ask for forgiveness and we move on. And I think we need to think through this. I'm hoping today will be a day of evaluation for us as individuals because I hope you understand that our main responsibility as believers is to take the gospel to the world and to be a witness for Him. People should see Jesus through us and through how we live our lives. And I fear that our witness for the Lord is violated when we abuse our freedoms. I fear our witness for the Lord is violated when we forget that we are a part of something so much greater than ourselves. I fear our witness for the Lord is violated when we make life personal. I fear the, our witness is violated when we become selfish and self-centered. And today I hope to stretch your minds and stretch my mind in thinking about this. I have five abuses of freedom that I'm going to share with you and think through with you. I'll be straight up honest with you. I, I, I don't think I'm going to get through them all. I'm going to be lucky to give you three of them. I wish I could preach another week, but I only have one, so I'm just going to give you what I can. The first abuse of freedom I will call, if you're taking notes, the first abuse of freedom, freedom I will call lifestyle. How you live your life. God has given you the freedom to make choices and live your life. But in those freedoms that God has given you, does our freedom in Christ give us the right to live however we want to live? It is true our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, but does that give us the freedom, just the license to do whatever we want to do? When we give our lives to, to Christ and the Holy Spirit is given to us, we are different, we are changed. We are to be different from the world in how we live our lives. Just recently, I was talking to someone about an incident that happened in my life, and it was before I knew the Lord. And as I was sharing the story, I started to get embarrassed because I couldn't, I, I just, you know, when the, Lord, when the Lord came into my life and saved me, and I know it's the same for you, um, He changed me. And as I was telling the story, I was brought back to who I was as an unbeliever, and it was embarrassing. And then I caught myself just being so thankful that the Lord snatched me out of that. I think you can relate to that, can't you? What the Lord has snatched you out of and changed you. First, or 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 20, I'm just going to read a portion of it to you. It says, so from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no, long for, no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And then if you go down to verse 20, and you can maybe read this later, um, because you are a new creation in Christ, it says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on God's behalf, be reconciled to God. 
as citizens of the kingdom of God, we think differently, we act differently, our actions are changed, our interests and desires change, and our lives are very different than those who are citizens of this world. How did we ever get to the point and I think this is part of this abuse. How did we ever get to the point where we think that we have to do all the same things unbelievers do to witness to them? Where did we ever get to the point that we thought being different wasn't what we were supposed to do, being the same as what we're supposed to be? Somehow we have come to the point where we think that we need to be like everybody else. I guess it's this desire to be cool you know, to fit in so that they'll listen to our message. Where did we ever think that, that, that they would listen to our message if we do all the same things, or to the Lord's message if we do all the same things they do? And I fear it's rooted in our desire to really want to do the things the world does. And I think we should think about that. Now, I'm going to give you an example. And I'm not sure it's the best example. And I'll tell you why. This is what pastors battle with, you know. I fear you're going to get so caught up in the example and the, and the specifics of the example, you might miss the principle behind it. So I'm not sure if it's the best example, but I'm going to give it to you anyways because it happened recently, and I hope you will pay attention to the principle, not the specifics. Recently, I had the chance to go on vacation. It was just a great vacation. Uh, I know many of you prayed for me. I got the opportunity to be alone for a couple of weeks, and it was, and the Lord just really ministered to me. You know, it's, as many of you know, it's been a long couple of years, and I needed some time just to be away and be with the Lord and think and process, and it was wonderful. On the second half of that vacation, I was with some friends up in Washington that I went to visit. Peter and Lori are their names. Some of you probably know them. And on this, it was, on, it was Sunday. I'd gone to church with them, just had a wonderful service, just really enjoyed it. And it was after church, I think after we had had lunch, and, and at some point we were sitting in, in his living room, and we were, I don't even remember the exact conversation, but we were talking about um, abuses of alcohol. Maybe he was telling me about, I, don't, I really don't remember. I just remember his question to me. And... And, and by the way, what I'm going to tell you is when he asked this question of me, I, I got a little passionate, <laughs> and you're not going to agree with what I told him. And I want you to know I don't agree with what I told him. And in fact, when it came out of my mouth, I backtracked very quickly. I was in a very, very comfortable situation. And he said to me, Tim, what would you say to someone who says that they drink wine in the Bible, so therefore it's okay. And I'm going to try to, I'm going to, try to give you kind of how, I'm going, to try to, um, do, I'm going to try to help you to see exactly how I responded. He says, what would you say if, to someone who says that they drank wine in the Bible, so therefore it's, it's okay to do that? I said, so what? So what? There's all kinds of things in the Bible. They're not necessarily all correct or right. And I said, in fact, and I just got, I hate it when I do this. You know, you, you need to hang on to your tongue. I need to hang on to my tongue. And I said, 
Peter, I don't even think believers, I wish believers wouldn't drink at all. And then I went, uh, I went just like this. Peter, wait a minute. <laughs> I said, I'm sorry. I said, that came out of my context, out of my, pre, out of my life. I grew up in the home of an alcoholic. I know the pain of alcoholism. My sister several times hid me and my brother in a closet for fear that our father was going to hurt us. And, I, and it was just, it was a terrible, terrible situation. And then I said I would never be like him. And I grew up and became an alcoholic myself. I was a teenage alcoholic and it almost destroyed my marriage. And so I know the pain that happens from abuse of alcohol. And that's where that came from. But I said, listen, backing up, the Bible doesn't really address that. It doesn't really say people shouldn't, shouldn't drink alcohol. It does say people shouldn't get drunk. And because drunk is when your mind gets altered. And I said, but what I do think about growing up with alcoholism what I do think about is when does someone actually get drunk? Because drunks never think they're drunk. And so we talked about that for a moment. And I said, but that's not even the real issue. The whole, you know, can you or can't you? I mean, we're free to do a lot of things as believers, but that's not the real issue for me. The real issue for me and the reason I don't drink alcohol, I should say, is because the Bible says we should do nothing that would cause a weaker brother to stumble. And our witness for the Lord is more important than what we want to do. And I said, that's what haunts me, that someone, and as you get older and as you're a believer, you realize people look at you. You realize people set standards by how you live your life. And what particularly haunts me is how terrible it would be if someone would see me do something, and I'm making it very personal because I'm not wanting to aim it at you, <laughs> you know, but I'm hoping you will process this, that if someone looks at me and sees me doing something and says, see, he does it, or even if it's just in the privacy of their own mind, they validate doing it and they have a problem with it, that's what haunts me. And so the principle behind all this, please don't go to lunch and talk about the rightness or wrongness of drinking alcohol. That's not the point. The point is, is we as believers have the freedom to do so much, but people watch us. And so we, I think we need to evaluate how we live our lives. And don't fall into the trap of thinking nobody watches you. Take it from experience. You'd be surprised. Someone is always watching you, and you may never know that you led them astray. <clears throat> There's a famous quote, uh, it's actually, I tried to see who it's attributed to, but it's actually attributed to, to a variety of people, and so I'll just tell you the quote. The quote goes like this, if you don't stand for something, you will fall for everything, or if you will fall for anything. And I don't know about you, actually I think I do know about many of you. I want to stand, and don't you want to stand for the, for the Lord? Don't you want to stand for the kingdom of God? Don't you want to be an example for Him? I don't want to just fall for everything and anything. The second abuse that I would share with you is... Uh, here, I got talking and lost my place. The second abuse I will just call opinion. Opinion. 
Do our freedoms in Christ give us the right to say anything we want to say? I think the answer to that is no. Is it our duty to say whatever we think needs to be said, no matter how it hurts someone? I think the answer to that is no. We live in an opinionated culture. It's all over the place. Everybody gives their opinion. I'll give you one example. And know that I'm not making a political statement here. I'm using an example. And actually, it kind of irritates me on both sides of this. Do you know who Gary Byrne is? How many of you know who Gary Byrne is? I'm catching you off guard, but I bet you do. He's the Secret Service agent that has written a book about Hillary Clinton that was on Bill Clinton's staff. And that's come out this week. And he's questioning Hillary Clinton's temperament to be President of the United States. He said she is too erratic, uncontrollable, and occasionally violent to be leader of the free world. And, I, and, and, and you know what? It happens so much, it just, it, it's, it's crazy. It's just, it's ridiculous. So what they do is they, here's one situation. Gary Byrne writes this book. He shares his, uh, his, uh, his opinions on Hillary Clinton. And then they get both sides of the, both camps to, to give their opinion on it. You already know what's going to come out of their mouth. You do. You already know. The people on the right, they'll have the right and the left. They maybe don't say it like that, but that's the way it is. The right and the left. I don't like those classifications, but that's the way they do it. And so the people on the right will say, yeah, she's terrible. Oh, nobody like that should ever be the president of the United States. And, of course, it's their chance to, to battle for their own agenda. And then the people on the left, they'll say, oh, you know, and they'll bring up the other candidate, Donald Trump. You know, he's, you know, and they'll blast him. And, you know, everybody's like that. Let's look at her policies. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because they all give their opinion. You already know what's going to come out of their mouth. It's like, to me, it's like blah, 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 blah. I saw an article this week by someone that I actually like, and it's taken a little bit out of context, but it makes a little bit of the point for me. She wrote in this article, and it had to do with free speech, She wrote, nowhere does our Constitution say we cannot say anything that offends someone. And I think that's a true statement. But I'm not so sure the Bible gives us that same freedom. I'm not saying we shouldn't have an opinion. What I'm trying to talk about is how we share those opinions. And I think, I fear it sneaks into the church. We have this opinionated culture, and so what happens? It comes into the church. Someone brings up an issue, and everybody gives their opinion on it. And you can almost guess what their opinion is if you know the person and you know what their agenda is. And then what we do, and I'm putting myself in this. I'm guilty of this too from time to time. We moan, groan, and complain about everything. And we forget what I think is maybe one of the most important scriptures in the Bible. I know it's tough to say that, but I'll explain. John 13, 34 and 35 says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. 
The reason I say it may be one of the most important passages in Scripture because it teaches us that how we interact with one another is a witness to the world. And social media has not helped us, folks, because social media for the church has created, and when I say the church, I'm talking about believers, has given us an avenue to, to, to say whatever we want to say without, like, without accountability, as if I'm going to put it out there because it makes me feel good, but nobody's going to read it. Nobody's going to form an opinion on who I am as a believer, and, it, and it's, it's dangerous. Is it not James chapter 1 that says everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry? Do we really believe that we are making a difference by spewing out our opinions? And what good is it if people hear our opinions and they don't want to listen to us? Because they already know what we're going to say. Do we really believe our opinions change the world? Or is it more important to live our lives for Jesus and think about that? And what does the Lord want for us? I would share two passages with you, and there's many that could be shared. Philippians 2, 14 and 15 says, Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which, you're, in which you shine like stars in the universe. Philippians 2, 3 and 4 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each one of you should not only look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And by the way, whether you yell or you talk really softly, like with a really nice, caring voice, you can say it really soft, but if it's really abrasive, it's as if you're yelling. And we need to think about these things. The third abuse of freedom that I would give you has to do with the most, one of the most important institutions that God created, and that is marriage. Marriage is a beautiful thing that God created. And I would ask you, if you are married and you're sitting with your spouse right now, maybe you would grab your spouse's hand and just hold, hold his and her hand. <laughs> and I want you to think about something for a moment. I want you to think about the day, whether it was an outdoor wedding or an indoor wedding, I want you to think about the day that you walked up to pledge your love to that person. And remember how much in love you were with that person. So much so that you would pledge, that you would stand by them, and you would love them until death do you part. Might not have been said like that, but you get what I'm saying. And then, how does it go so haywire? How does it go so bad that we would forget that? It doesn't for all, but it does for some. And you know, the statistics on marriage are, are all over the place, and it's hard to evaluate statistics. But you know, marriage in America is in trouble. And you might be sitting here thinking, I'm not married, so this doesn't apply to you. Oh, yes, it does. I'm not married anymore either because my wife's with the Lord but it still applies to me, and I would ask you to hang in there for a minute, and I'm going to show you why. But marriage in America is in trouble. Everybody pretty much agrees that 50% of all marriages fail. And I wish it was, I wish the statistics were better for, the, for those who claim the name of Christ, but it's really not. It's really pretty much the same. 
And then on top of that, that's created because marriage is, is in so much trouble. It's, it's, it's changing our culture a bit to the point that many young adults today, rather than getting married, are, are joining into a live-in type marriage relationship to kind of try it out, if you will, and they're enjoying all the freedoms of marriage that God told them they should not enjoy except within the marriage relationship. And by the way, many of those relationships fail. And then on top of that, the culture is changing because young people are getting married. They're staying in, a, in kind of a love relationship without getting married longer. They may not be living together, but they're staying in that relationship longer without getting married. And because they're in love, they have a natural God-given desire to, to be together, and so they begin to enjoy the freedoms of marriage that they shouldn't enjoy until they get married because it's dangerous, because it's not a closed system. And then there's this trend. It's, I don't know that it's a real trend yet, but I'm seeing people... Um, if you are like me in my age bracket... <laughs> you know, older folks who maybe have lost their spouse and they, they get involved and they get into a committed relationship with someone else and they live in kind of a common law situation because they don't want to get married because they'll lose their social security. And see, so they violate the marriage relationship. And then people with marriage these days, people are not even standing up there's this trend. They're not even standing up before pastors anymore. The whole sacred, I'm not saying pastor is magical or something, but they get their friends to go get a license on, online so that their friend can perform the marriage ceremony. And something gets lost, and so marriage is in trouble. And yet it's this beautiful, beautiful institution that God created. And I want to tell you this, whether you are married or not, you need to understand something. You need to understand that marriage is not our own personal institution. You need to know that marriage is, about, is not about our own personal freedoms, rights, or happiness. And that doesn't mean that God doesn't want us to be happy. I can tell you that I loved being married. I just thought it was the greatest thing in the whole wide world, and I was so thankful for the wonderful wife God gave me, and I still praise the Lord for that. But it is not just about us. When God created the marriage relationship, Genesis 2.24, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. When God created the marriage relationship, his, pers his purpose was much more than just you and me. You need to understand that marriage is a visible picture to all that would see it of Jesus Christ and his relationship to his bride, the church, or believers. We know this throughout Scripture, but it is most clear in my mind in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32, where after speaking about the roles that the husband and wife play in the relationship, the Apostle Paul says, this, speaking of marriage, is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. And so the husband and wife are a visible picture of something to the world for everybody to see. It's something God created to witness to the world about 
him and how he interacts with his bride. And I understand all the, the, there's just so much hot discussion about the the roles of the husband and wife. And we, we get all, you know, bothered about, you know, the wife is to submit to the husband and the husband's the leader of the home. And by the way, the emphasis is more on love than leadership. But we, we talk about all that and we want to debate all that and we want to talk about equality and all that stuff has nothing to do with equality because men and women are all equal in Christ. And we miss what it's all about. For the wife, ladies, if you are a wife, in the marriage relationship, you are a visible picture for everybody to see of how believers are to interact with the Lord. This is why it says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. So how you, how you interact with your, with your husband and how you respect your husband is a picture for everybody to see about how we are to be in a relationship with the Lord, how we are to treat the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is Savior. Ladies, is how you treat your husband. Today, communion, as we prepare to go to communion here in a moment, today is a day to evaluate. Is how you treat your husband a clear, visible picture of how God wants us as people to interact with him? If your son or daughter struggles with rebellion... Have you ever wondered that it might be because of what they see modeled in you? I know that's a bit tough to hear, but it speaks to all of us. And husbands, you might be saying, yeah, great, talk to my wife. But listen, you ought to be thinking about yourself because it, you're not off the hook. The husband in the marriage relationship, catch this, men, you are a picture of God himself. That doesn't mean she should worship you. What it means is you are a picture of Jesus Christ and how he cares and how he loves and how he interacts with his people. Husbands, it says, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Men is how you treat your wife, imaging or a right visible picture of how Jesus himself treats people. You are a picture of God. Is it not true that we have so many people in prison because they had bad dads? Is it, is, is it any wonder that we know that so many young people struggle to understand who God is because of the picture of their dad is not a right picture of who God is, so they grow up thinking God is something other than what He actually is? We abuse this institution that God created to reflect himself to the world in need of a savior. And you might say, I'm not married, so I don't need to worry about it. Yes, you do. Because you can violate the marriage relationship. You can take advantage or you can abuse that wonderful relationship without ever being married. We go in and out of relationships and we treat them as if we are married. We act, people act like they're married without ever getting married. And they just cast aside Hebrews 13:4 that says marriage should be honored by all in the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. We go in and out of relationships, and maybe we don't go quite that far, but we do everything else, and we forget that Ephesians 5 says, but among us there should not even be a hint of sexual immorality, because this is improper for God's 
holy people. You realize if you're in a relationship with someone, let's say a man is in relationship with a girl, a lady, and let's say he chooses to be affectionate or, or let's just say he kisses that girl and let's say the relationship goes belly up. That man's kissing may potentially be kissing someone else's wife. But see, we don't think about that because all we think about is what we want. As we prepare to go to communion, like I said, there's so much more I could say, but I hope you catch the principle behind it. We need to evaluate our lives because people see Jesus through us. One of the most, what, what, I, what is one of my most favorite passages in Scripture, um, and there's a lot of them, but this one really speaks to me, and it, speaks, it should speak to you as a believer. It's in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 12. It says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your good deeds and they will glorify God on the day that he visits them. As we go to communion, we recognize that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, and we recognize that he set us free, he liberated us from sin with the responsibility behind it that we would go out and declare Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. I'm going to give us just a minute to be silent before the Lord. I'm not going to say anything else. I'm going to let you talk to the Lord, and then we will take communion. And you are welcome to take communion, whether you are a member of our church or not. If you know the Lord Jesus, you are welcome. Let's pray.